So on this episode of Tips from the Pros, I got the privilege of interviewing Dan Francis again. He is the CEO and founder of Stepstone Realty. That's one of your biggest realty companies in Texas for investor agents. So they specialize, all of their agents are real estate investors as well. Uh, an amazing organization. We're a part of it. Uh, great, great people, great network, great education. We covered a lot. We covered a lot about foreclosures, the market, opportunities for investors that's coming in, how it is that being an agent is going to benefit you in this type of market, as well as being an investor. So if you're an agent and you're not an investor, you need to consider that. And if you're an investor, but not an agent, you definitely need to consider that. So we cover all of that in this episode. So make sure you hit that like. All links, everything are going to be below in the description. And I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. With that being said, let's get into it. So the question is always the same. How do I get into real estate investing if I have no money? How do I find deals? How do I negotiate deals? How do I find contractors and manage rehabs? How do I get the money to even buy these houses, to hold these houses? How does a rental work? How do you manage a rental? How do you manage tenants? How do you borrow money? How do you borrow money with almost no interest? How are all these things done and how are they done the right way? Well, I am John Barbera and this is an investor's journey where we share with you how to invest in real estate the right way and how to get into it with no money, how to do this with real tactics that are working today in the market that we're in right now with things that we are personally doing. So welcome to the show. Dan Francis, welcome back to the show. How have you been, sir? Thank you. Been really good. Thanks. I right. appreciate that. Very good. So we had you on. You were our first guest on Tips from the Pros um, last year, April 2020, right as this whole thing started. Um, at the time, we were talking about Stepstone. Stepstone Realty, I recommend everybody go check out that interview. He covered a lot on how to get started in real estate. Uh, a lot of really good tips. I went back to re-listen to that interview and there were still a lot of good things. I was like, shoot, I completely forgot you said that. <laughs> so very good interview. Go, uh, It'll be in the notes be below us. Um, but at the time, you had around 250 agents in Stepstone. So from that time to now, how what does Stepstone look like? Yeah, um, I think as of yesterday, we were at 307, so um, continue to grow. We we were lucky to grow through the pandemic. Yeah. I know a lot of companies did not have that kind of luck. No. Um, not that the PPP loan didn't hurt, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but even then, we, we grew um, both in the number of agents and in income, so, um, you know, I feel very fortunate for that, for sure. And what do you think has attributed to that kind of growth uh, this past year during a pandemic, during everything? What got that? You know, I think it's just that we're consistent. We're steady mm -hmm. and we're consistent about, um, you know, executing our plans, executing our marketing, executing our sales calls, uh, you know, and just diligently trying to grow the, the business and we didn't let the pandemic stop that process or we didn't shift gears from that process. We added some things to help with some revenue um, because of the pandemic, mostly the online CE classes that we now do, uh, but which was a great stop gap, um, mm -hmm. kind of fill in the gap revenue stream for us. But um, we didn't stop with marketing. We didn't stop with recruiting. 
Um, we didn't stop trying to educate our agents and helping them grow and helping them get better at what they do. Um, and we just continually see the results. It's a steady, slow climb, um, which we're, we're happy with, we're thrilled with. So with the training that you're providing, the, the classes that you're providing and everything, how do you see that that's, uh, have you adjusted those classes based on the current market and how has that helped your agents? Like, have you seen how they have adjusted to all this? You know, I don't know that we changed um, because there's always distress in every every cycle. Mm -hmm. um, it really doesn't matter what the economy does. There's there's always distress, and that's what we educate about is how to market to, talk to, um, and position position yourself with distressed sellers or sellers in distressed situations. And um, but I think that people's fears and concerns about distress in the marketplace has increased an in interest in that, which mm -hmm. has been a benefit to us. Um, but I think our training is, is consistent in that it's always trying to stay up to date. And I think that's, you know, what makes it a little bit different than maybe some training you get elsewhere is we don't allow ours to age because we're constantly using our agents who are having success right now to educate about what they're doing that's, that's having success. Right. And that's how we stay on the cutting edge of what's working. So I wanted to touch on that because I think that's what you guys did. That's great. That it's not like the Dan and Angie show uh, as far as these classes go. You're finding your top agents that are having success in whatever field that is, whether it's wholesaling, you know, fix and flips, buy and hold, and you're having them train the class. You're having them give that class. So yeah. what made you get to that point? You know, I mean, how, how blessed are we that we, you know, our agents are willing to do that. I, I you know, when I, talk to other agents and talk to them about StepStone and say, hey, you should come over. You know, one of the complaints that they have about um, the current brokerage that they're in, you know, there's common complaints that I hear mm -hmm. all the time. And, you know, one of them is that the top producers in our office won't share what's working. <laughs> um, they, they, keep that, they keep their cards close to their chest. I can't get any help at all from, from my fellow agents. Um, man, we've been so blessed that it's so different with StepStone. And I, I think part of that is just we've really worked hard to create that culture um, where agents are willing to share. But I think part of it is, too, is is that we are investor-focused, and there's a recognition among investors that it's difficult to go it alone. You know, when you're when you're just out there searching for listings, it's kind of a zero sum game. So I can understand if you're getting a lot of listings, you may not want to tell other people how to, you're getting the listings right. because then they may start siphoning off some of your listings. But in the investment world, there's a recognition that the more deals we can bring into the StepStone world, the better off we're all going to be because it means opportunities for all of us. It could be opportunities to partner. There could be opportunities to consult on the deal. It could be opportunities to lend money. Uh, so, you know, that's that I think just creates a different attitude, a different culture. And so our agents are very willing and eager to share what's working because they want more deals coming in, yeah. you know, and they want that opportunity to be an expert, to be um, someone that other people may turn to for help because they know that's opportunity for themselves. So, you know, I'm not saying that it's selfish that they're doing that. It's one of the most unselfish things that they can do is spend their time instead of working on their business, educating our other agents. But they recognize that that's just a benefit to everybody. And so... Um, what a great group, man. I'm mean, just yeah. so thrilled with the agents we have. No, I completely agree. I mean, the collaboration within that group, so many deals that we've done, people we borrowed from, continue to borrow from, partner with, uh, even just 
recommendations. I mean, how many times do you see people just going on that group and just saying, hey, I need a contractor for this or a lawyer for that or title yeah. company. It's, and, and you can, what I like is that you can trust whatever advice comes out of there because you, I, I've seen like the crappy agents kind of weed themselves out <laughs> of the group. And then it's the, what's left is like good people. Nobody mm -hmm. wants to screw anybody over because it, even though you have 300 plus agents, it's still a very close community. Yeah. So, I mean, I commend you on that because the growth that you guys have had and the quality of the growth, I think, is uh, definitely why you guys have grown. You know, I think people who have been in investing, you know, outside of StepStone or prior to joining StepStone um, get frustrated with what goes on out there in the investor community. Um, there is a lot of bad advice. There mm -hmm. is a lot of um, kind of sneaky, underhanded moves, um, lies. Uh, trying to take advantage of other investors. And, you know, I think that they like the fact that within StepStone, that stuff doesn't happen. And so um, mostly because we can enforce that. We'd kick anybody out for pulling that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and so, you know, it just makes business, we're just making business easier on each other. You know, why, why does it have to be so hard? Why do we have to wonder if somebody's, you know, telling us something that's that's not true to advantage themselves? Um, that doesn't happen in StepStone. And so uh, it's one of the things we're really, really proud of. And I, I wanted to ask you, because you guys are, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys specialize on being investor agents, right? That, that's the specialty of StepStone, why it's not like Keller Williams or Remax or any other of the big ones. Because you're not traditional listings. You, they can do traditional listings, but you focus on agents that want to be investors and that correct right, correct so the only competition that i see for you and i still wouldn't call it competition but the only competition is these low fee brokerages that are popping up everywhere uh trying to attract more wholesalers and stuff like that like what are your thoughts on these low fee brokerages that are offered to investors i mean i think it's their niche and i think you know they've got a business model that's that's working for them um i don't necessarily see that as competition uh because i, I feel like we're the only brokerage that um immerses you in the investor world and you know if you want to be successful in investing surround yourself with people who are being successful at investing and that's the difference. I think they would attract people who are lone wolves, just wanting to do their own thing. Um, that's not who we attract and not who we want. We want people who want to participate in that community, want to immerse themselves in the investor world, and want to learn from each other and help each other be more successful. And I think um, that community atmosphere um, is not duplicated anywhere else in, in real estate. Uh, I what you just said of immerse you in real estate investing, I think is the key to why so many people don't learn, right? It's like learning a new language. Go live in the country you want right. to learn the language. Right. And I think being a part of a group like that, it's that you're, be, you're in that country where you're learning the language of investing. That's what's being spoken about consistently. Classes you guys hold. I mean, you have, I think, a few classes on what, like agent ethics or something about the agent side just because... You still need to be a good agent. You got to make sure, you know, you don't get yourself or the broker in trouble by doing stuff that, that, that you don't know. That, that class you mentioned, I just want to pause right there and, and, mm -hmm. and talk about it because um, it's called Understanding Agency for the Investor Agent. Mm. And it's not really, I wouldn't say, I mean, it is about ethics, mm -hmm. but um, 
it's one of the most important classes that we do. And I think one of the most um, important classes for our agents, not in terms of compliance or these are the things you can't do, or this mm -hmm. will get you in trouble. Um, I would say it's a class that when people take it, it, it frees them up. And I think that's a lot of fear that, that investors have in getting their, their licenses. There's a lot of myths around getting your license that it will restrict you from doing investing. And what that class is about is to show you that that's not true. And that as long as you will come in, you know, presenting yourself as investor, as buyer, that you are really free to do anything you do, even if you didn't have a license. And so it, People like that class because at the end of it, they can come out there with confidence that what they're doing is ethical, what they're doing is right, that they can go wholesale, they can do a wrap, they can do all of these things no different than if they didn't have their license, but what a great opportunity they have to have their license and monetize more of those leads and and just have a, a better, more professional background um, to present themselves to sellers. And that works both ways because you also have encountered agents that don't think that they can do investment deals oh, because yeah. they're agents, right? Right. Oh, I, I get that all the time. Um, it, it's fun to do a subject to class in, in front of a live audience. Um, it's a little, been a little bit different now doing it, you know, in front of a camera for Zoom. Yeah. Uh, but in front of a live audience, man, some of the sneers I get from some of the agents out there saying, you can't do that. And I'm like, yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a lot of fun. So what, what's, uh, not to go into too much depth of the, on that topic, but what is the one thing that you would tell agents that why it is that you can transition from an agent to an investor when you're out there just prospecting and doing things? How can they make that transition if a deal is more for makes more sense as an investment versus a traditional listing? Well, we'll always tell them to, to market themselves as investor first. And I think that's probably the biggest change that those who have experience in, in agency um, don't, you know, kind of have to grapple with. It, it's almost like they're kind of having to start over just in terms of their marketing strategy. Um, and so that's probably the biggest transition for them. But as long as you go, you know, you market yourself as buyer and you meet your sellers as a buyer, it's much easier to, you know, get a deal done, an investor deal done, because once you switch to, well, I could represent you, why don't I represent you in this deal? And why don't we list this property? Then it's re it, that is where the barrier is in going back to right. saying I can buy the property. Um, not that you can't do it. It's just a lot more hurdles that you have to overcome. But as long as you're going out there as buyer, you're marketing yourself as buyer, um, you really don't have to change that. That is a really good tip to have in mind. I did a video recently on why it is that I believe investors need to have their license. And I put like, I don't know, I think I had come up with about at least eight different revenue sources that we've tapped into because John is an agent. Um, and it's just something that I feel it hits on the point that you covered on the last interview that we did, that you said, no matter what crisis is presented, if you're an investor that understands multiple strategies, you'll always be okay. Right. And I feel like having a license and being an investor, I mean, what really can't you do at this point? Yeah. There's not, there's not a seller I ever met that I didn't have a solution for. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean they wanted to do that solution yeah. that that was, you know, that we, we <clears throat> made a deal. Um, but boy, it sure is easier to come away with something. 
And I remember when we were doing it full time, it was about two thirds of the contracts we came away with were actually a contract to list and one third were a contract to buy. Um, that's probably different in different markets, might be different today. Uh, but, but the point being is that, man, that would have been a lot of money to leave on the table. Yeah. And, and, uh, I have heard people say, well, why would I want to list property? That's a whole new thing that I have to learn. And <laughs> I'm like, really kind of seems exactly the same as wholesaling. So what you're doing is you're going, getting it under contract, just a listing agreement versus a contract. You're marketing it. There's even a system built for you. You just put it in the MLS and, uh, and then you're negotiating a contract for sale and then you're taking it to closing. I don't understand how that's any different than a wholesale. Mm -hmm. I don't know what new skill you think you're going to need to learn. Um, it's all basically the same thing. So why would you not, you know, you're, it's funny. Uh, I've talked to one of my agents, Erica Butler. Um, Mm -hmm. she mentions this a lot, how she'll talk to somebody and they'll say, man, I, I wholesaled this and made $3,000 and she'll look at him and go, you could have listed that and made six. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's actually funny because yesterday we've been doing a lot of marketing and yesterday we uh, spoke with a landlord and he's just tired. He's liquidating all of his properties. He had four. He's already sold one. Um, So I looked at the other three and he's like, if you don't give me uh, anything, um, if you're going to offer me anything under uh, 175, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not even interested. I'm like, all right. So I did the analysis and everything. And I saw those properties that were built in 2011. Excellent condition. I was like, and I looked at the comps. I looked at everything. I told them, I was like, look, I don't want to disrespect you or anything. Like you said, anything under that, you don't want to listen. I'm under that because I am looking for an investment. What you're asking is close to retail. But I do want to tell you, I did look at your other one that sold, and there's a reason why that sold cash. I was like, because you sold it for, you listed it for 175. Like, you should have listed it for 190. You know, that's what the comps are in the area. I don't know why your agent listed so low, and that's yeah. why it sold so fast for cash. Um, I was like, but in reality, you should be listing for like 190. So I think that's definitely your best play. You know, let me know if there's anything you need. He's like, well, can you list it? I was like, we sure can. <laughs> you know, so now we got three listings all at like 190, 200. Wow. Uh, excellent conditions. There's nothing that needs to do. And in this market, all we got to do is just put it on the market. Oh, yeah. That's it. And yeah. now what's that? Like 17, 18, 18 grand commission? Grand, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like could have been nothing turned into nearly 20 grand. Uh-huh. Hey, <laughs> to me, that's that's a I win. Mean, yeah, it's, it's just such a huge advantage. And uh, can you be an investor without a license? Yeah. But why would you? I mean, it, it, and it's not a difficult process. It's, you know, some hurdles, some classes you got to do and a test you got to take and you can't be a terrorist. So, you know, you got to go through a fingerprinting, yeah. but as long as you're not a terrorist, <laughs> then, uh, Shucks. <laughs> then you're, you're a okay. It's, it's, you know, yeah. I, I haven't had anybody try to go through that process and not be successful. Um, so it can be done. And if you're going to be in here for the long haul, if you're saying, Hey, I want to be in real estate for the next 20 years, get, do it now, you know, take advantage of it. So it takes you, even if it takes you a year to get it done and only have the next 19 years where you can make more money more easily, where you have your own access to the MLS. I mean, there's just nothing about it that creates a disadvantage. That's what I don't understand who, with people who educate that you should not get your license is I don't understand what the disadvantage is. And everything that I've been told is a disadvantage seems to be based upon a myth or based upon 
well, don't get hooked up with a broker that won't let you do that, you know? Right. And, and so, um, those opportunities are, are there for you just to grab and they're so easy to get. Yeah. Um, so with all that, having your license, being an investor with a license is hands down to me. I, I mean, I think if anybody listening needs more convincing, uh, you know, maybe real estate is just a struggle for you. Uh, that being said, I have noticed that getting your license has gotten every year a little bit harder as far as the requirements. Like, I think the longer you wait, the harder it might get to get your license. Like when John got his license, it was something that, you mail, know. The mail correspondence courses. Yeah. Those are great. So yeah. much easier to just blow through it. Uh, you know, there were so the tests were easier to get through everything. Now they have more requirements that, you know, you can't just fail it 10 times and just understand what the answers mm -hmm. are. I mean, there's so many things that have changed, which I think is good because it makes better agents, I would hope. Um, but yeah, the more you guys wait, the, the harder it's going to be for you to get it. I think the sooner you get your license, the better off you are. Yeah. Um, so shifting gears a little bit. Last time we spoke, we were all thinking that it was back in April. So COVID was very fresh. Everything was very fresh. We didn't know what was happening. Everything was shut down. Uh, we anticipated the worst, right? And you've been through the 2008 crash and you were kind of seeing that, you know, what makes sense to be that short sales and owner finance would be coming back because of affordability, people not being able to buy. Yet everything just like flipped completely in the opposite direction. Buyers flew in from everywhere. Prices went through the roof. Inventory went way down. I mean, what what do you think was the biggest thing that surprised you from what actually happened versus what you thought would happen? I think uh, that the government learned from 2008 that you go big or you go home, mm. that the stimulus package that was passed in 2008 was too small, um, came out of a compromise, and that it didn't have enough of effect um, and how quickly quickly they reacted. And so um, I'm not making a judgment call whether those stimulus packages long-term or, or were, were a good call or a bad call, but certainly they had an impact on the economy. Um, I think also what's different than 2008 is just we're learning how um, powerful the buying power of the millennial generation has been. And that as they emerge into peak buying power, um, of age 55. They're now hitting 40-ish, mm -hmm. um, mostly in their 30s. Their buying power is increasing. It is the single largest generation ever. Um, and they have been driving the economy steadily upward since 2008. And, uh, you know, since after the crash of 2008, I think that's just going to continue. Um, but I think some of what we thought was going to happen is happening. And that it revolves around distress. The other thing the government did is kind of pushed back distress, mm -hmm. which may prove that it will lessen the impact. You know, I think if they hadn't done that, there would have been um, probably a lot more foreclosures if they had not done foreclosure moratoriums. Uh, you know, you could look at all the residual effects, some good, some bad. 
Um, but overall, it probably will end up reducing the number of foreclosures as people get back to work. They will qualify for loan modifications, um, mm -hmm. workout plans when the forbearances all come due. But there's going to be a large group that won't. And just the amount of distress in the loans right now, and particularly FHA loans, um, is extremely significant. 12 to 15% of people are 90 days or more behind on their FHA loans. Um, three of the top 10 markets for that dis level of distress are here in Texas. Mm. Um, so San Antonio, Houston, and DFW. Uh, government is right now issuing warnings in, to all the loan servicers to bolster up their loss mitigation departments, to get ready. Starting in September, they're going to get flooded with phone calls. Um, they're going to get flooded with loan modification applications, workout plans, but also short sales and foreclosures. Um, short sales less so just because there's so much equity in properties because of what's happened. Um, so, you know, there there was a crystal ball miss. Mm. Um, I don't think we're going to see a rush of, of short sales, but we're certainly going to see um, a, a large number of people who didn't get back to work or aren't making as much, who don't qualify for loan modifications or don't even try to apply, um, who don't, you know, just non-communicative uh, communicative, mm -hmm. um, borrowers, which is always a certain percentage of that. Um, we are going to see an increase in the number of homes that hit the auction block. There's no question about it. And that level of distress means opportunity for investors. What a weird market we'll be in where there is such high demand, low inventory, and yet distress. It's it's almost uh, an oxymoron that that could exist, yeah. but but uh, but I think that's what we're going to see. But again, you know, yeah, we don't. Know. Yeah, it's it's speculation. It's crystal ball. Is that what's going to happen? Certainly, the government thinks that's what's going to happen. Certainly, the hedge funds think that's what's going to happen. Is they're gearing up to start bidding at auctions. Um, they're going to do a massive land grab again, just like they did in two thousand eight, um, and they're gearing up for it. So they tend to be smarter than me. So uh, uh, yeah. probably you know keep an eye on what they're doing and what they're preparing for. But everybody seems to be preparing for an increase in the amount of distress. So unpacking that a little bit, you said that starting September we're going to see you know loan um, loan originators or, or loan servicers are going to start getting hit a lot because that's when forbearance is over. That's correct. Right. So you don't anticipate forbearance being extended again, anything like that? If the numbers I mean, stay it, high? You know, so forbearance is always something that's up to the lender, right? And the investor behind the loan could always issue, you know, or um, grant a forbearance. Uh, the government was very encouraging of that and almost forcing that um, for any kind of government-backed loan. Uh, which is why we see a massive amount of delinquency in FHA loans. Um, I think the government's done. We get, you know, at some point mm. they've got to let things play out. You know, you can't hold these things off forever. The servicers are, um, you know, the investors really are taking some hits. You know, they're not collecting payments; they're making payments uh, to whoever they borrowed the money from. Um, same with eviction moratoriums. You know, you've seen those extended somewhat. Uh, but not for very long. So, you know, because landlords are taking such a hit with yeah. that and eventually something's got to give and you just got to let this play out. So I think the goal was to just get us past the pandemic mm -hmm. to where people can return to work and then maybe they can work those things out with their lenders, but you just got to let it play out. So touching on that point a little bit, I want to know if you have any theories 
on why it is that so many people are choosing not to go to apparently. Uh, I've read articles where they're saying, you know, 4 million people just up and quit their jobs in April. Um, quit their jobs. So they had jobs <laughs> and they quit. <laughs> like in a time where you, where the government, everybody's making a large effort for people to get to. What do you think? What, what do you think is causing this level of people not wanting to go back to work or quitting their jobs? Do you have any theories on that? I think you just have um, residual effects from uh, government stimulus programs. Mm -hmm. And there's always going to be some level of weirdness that occurs in that that will eventually just kind of smooth itself out. You know, again, I'm, I don't want to make any kind of judgment calls as to whether that was a good idea or a bad idea. Yeah. Um, ultimately, I think they, they're meeting the goal of bridging a gap, right. preventing a collapse of the economy. Um, you're going to have some people abuse that, take advantage of that. With any government program, you will have a certain level of that. Um, I think probably, too, people just ad adjust and... Um, things become more important or less important. So maybe mm. having two incomes into your household just became less important. And whether or not you're going to get, you know, any kind of government assistance or unemployment, um, there's some level of, you know, we'll just live cheaper. And, mm. uh, but I, I think it's just so complicated and so, you know, many yeah. factors yeah. that can factor into that. I think that the media likes to play that up. I think politicians like to play that up um, is to say, oh, people are being lazy or we're encouraging to be lazy. I think that's just a temporary residual effect that will just smooth itself out over time as these programs come to an end. And overall, the programs probably did keep us from collapsing and yeah. in entering a depression. Um Again, I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. We have a long time to pay for that. You know, uh, we we went in significant debt to do that. Was that the right thing to do or wrong thing to do? I don't know. But did it have its intended consequence? Yes. Did it have unintended consequences? Yes. And so I think you just have to take that as a whole and say, you know, are we, you know, in the future, if something like this happens again, are we willing to accept those little residual weirdness Um I think that's better than than demonizing the people who have chosen not to work. Yeah. Um or to make it some sort of political statement. I think we just have to look at it as a whole and say, man, we probably did stave off of depression and we have some residual effects, but a year from now nobody will be talking about it. It'll be over and it just won't matter anymore. I, and I agree. I think uh, my point with all this is like combining all of these data points that you're throwing out. So you have, you know, some people that are quitting their jobs or not going back to work or not able to find a job. Then you have forbearance period ending. So people are going to have to do loan mods. They're going to have to catch up their payments. They're going to have to do something. Um, but one thing that was brought to my attention by uh, another investor that's been doing this for a few decades is that he said, he's like, never underestimate the people not wanting to solve their own problems. So doing a loan mod requires effort on their part. Doing a short sale requires effort on their part. Doing all these things require effort that a lot of people are just going to be like, eh, 
screw it. Let the bank just take it. And I'm done with this, you know, and they'll take the foreclosure. They'll take the loss. So, you know, as far as foreclosures coming down the line, do you feel like that would be a driving factor on, you know, opportunity for investors? And Absolutely. That's what I meant by non-communicative uh, borrowers. So they're the ones that the banks can't talk to, that won't talk to them, won't answer the calls, won't return their calls, won't try to work it out, don't know what their options are. They just ignore the problem entirely. Um, you know, you and I, we read the same books every month. Yeah. Uh, I know there's been a couple that we've read that talk a lot about what stress does to you. Um, so it's not, you know, I don't want to judge people in that position. Um, I can't, you know, the problems that they're facing are probably extremely overwhelming. You've sat with sellers in those situations Mm -hmm. before. I've sat with sellers in the situation before. Oftentimes they fight with each other. They yell at their kids. Um, the whole situation just seems like a, you know, a powder keg ready to go off. And so because those financial stresses just create, just wreak havoc on the family unit. And so the fact that they're ignoring problems or, you know, burying their head um, is understandable. And there's no way to prevent a certain percentage of people just acting that way. And I think that is opportunity for us to reach out to them and and try to offer them some help and a solution and a vision of that life doesn't have to be that way anymore. Um, You can't, you can get a fresh start. We can get past this. Um, They're afraid to talk to the bank because they think the bank is after them. Um, We come in as their friend. I think that's a great opportunity for us for sure. So one thing that you, touched on is offering them solutions, doing all this. So I think when when I've dealt with distressed homeowners, I started marketing two foreclosures when I started in real estate because they were pretty big at the time. There were a lot of foreclosures, a lot of people losing their homes. And one of the reasons why I had much more success than others was empathy, right? I mean, there's so many wholesalers or investors that I know that are just so cold, right? When they're just, they're just transactional. Yeah. You need to sell. Here's a cash offer, right. take it, buy, go to the next one, right? Mm-hmm. Where I think in these types of situations, it's like you said, it's not judging them. It's just understanding that uh, there's been high divorce rates, right? Uh, high consumption of alcohol, high all these things creating stressors in their lives. They probably lost their job. They can't find something to take care of their wages. Now they're losing their home. They don't know where to go. Maybe they have a family. So it gets to a point where a human body gets so much stress that they just shut down. Yeah. And and don't, you know, one, one thing that I don't think is talked about enough is don't underestimate the effects of the loss of childcare um, that mm. is had in this, in this country, you know, in the stress on the family unit um, and loss of childcare came from daycare shutting down to yeah. schools shutting down. So um, you need to understand that schools are a giant source of childcare uh, for parents in in this country, and so um, having your kids at home and and you know you want to know why people don't go back to work, they don't know what to do with their kids. Yeah. You know, getting yep. schools back open is going to be a huge factor in people choosing to go back to work. Um, so just all of these stresses, you have to be able to empathize with that. And to understand, you know, it's difficult to understand if you've never gone through something like that. But just know that they're not, you know, flawed people. They're not just, you know, oh, they just have some moral, you know, vacuum that causes them just to not work or they're just lazy. You know what causes laziness? Stress causes laziness, you know. Lack of sleep causes laziness. 
you know, and, and until you've been in those situations, you don't know what that's like. Yeah, they've been beat down so much that it's not that they wouldn't want to solve this problem, is that they can't even think about they it anymore. Even, yeah, it's just too overwhelming. My goodness. Well, I mean, like, you know, yes, a lot of people make this, they kind of turn this like, oh, you guys are just, uh, uh, what they call it, vultures and, and taking advantage of a situation. But one thing that I've realized as being an investor for so long is that these people are very grateful that we presented a solution to them. Because if we don't reach out to them, just the same way that their loan uh, originators and all of the servicers are not reaching out to them, they don't know what the heck they can do. Right. So we're the ones reaching out, giving them an actual solution to their problem versus just let it all go to hell and hope for the best. So when people always say, oh, you guys are vultures, you guys, I'm like, we're the only ones out here actually providing them a solution. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't see how that's a terrible thing to do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's funny that, that you bring that up, being called a vulture. Um, you don't call your doctor a vulture for making money when you get sick. Uh, right. You know, so <laughs> um, we just make money when somebody gets house sick. And, yeah. <laughs> and you know, that's it, being their friend is the most important thing you can do. And, and, and you know, um, I'm not saying that my way of meeting sellers is better than anybody else's. Um, but I, when I teach people how to meet with sellers, it's, it's very much about don't talk about the house or their situation until you're friends. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to spend some time making friends with them, getting to know them, getting to understand what their life is like, what their problems are, uh, being able to empathize with what they're going through. And then when you reach that level with them, then you're not making them an offer. You're not negotiating a price with them. You're sitting down with them and figuring out a solution to get them from this stressful, crazy situation into something they can afford where the bill collectors aren't calling anymore, uh, where they're set up and they're able to have a fresh start in, in, in a non-stressful environment where they can get back to, you know, the strength of their family unit and, uh, um, just some hope, you know, yeah. you really got to give them some hope. Yeah. No, I think those are some excellent points. And I hope that you guys actually pay attention and listen to that because that's one thing that has upset me about calling your, you know, calling ourselves real estate investors is that negative connotation that kind of has gotten because of how shady people are and how transactional people are. That's like, these are people that have a real issue, especially coming, you know, after September and everything. We're probably going to see a lot more because now, they are being forced out in a lot of situations. So it's going to be a very emotional time. And if you're transactional, if you just care about that deal and not about the person, like, you know, is you're making their situation even that much harder where now when somebody better comes along to actually offer them a solution, they just shut off. And they're like, no, you guys are all the same. You're going to just lowball me and try to screw me over. And it's like, now you just lost your house. You're probably getting foreclosed. It's going to destroy your credit. And right. it's like, could have been avoided. Yeah. One of the <clears throat> lists that people, um, you know, have worked for years and years and years is the non-owner occupied list. And one of our agents, actually, James Tankersley brought up this point, and I thought it was a really good one, is that um, while that list is kind of meh, it's always been a little meh, you know, talking to the tired landlords you're going to have some really tired landlords. It's not just homeowners, owner occupants who have applied for those forbearances. Yeah. It is landlords trying to stave off the fact that they're not getting any rent 
And now when these evictions come up and they are evicting people and they haven't had any money and they don't have a renter and they, you know, now their forbearances do might not be a bad list to work. Hey podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. And if you want to get very exclusive insider tips and strategies that nobody else is getting, then you need to join our text community by texting podcast to 210-794-9898. That's 210-794-9898. Text the word podcast and you will start receiving insider information Things that are happening that we're realizing that we're implementing in real time that other people have no access to. So make sure you text us now. Now back to this show. Well, and then even then, like a lot of people are saying, uh, I've spoken to investors where they're like, yeah, but you know where the market is at, they can just go ahead and list it. Yeah. And you could be that person to listen, yeah, right? <laughs> you know, exactly. because it's just, it's, it's that. It's just, it's not always uh, every deal you do has to be a home run. You can just keep doing these base hits. You know, eventually they all come in and it's just more money that just, you know, you keep the lights on. You, right. I mean, what an advantage to you to be an investor agent when you're talking to these investors, even if it's to list their property, you know, there's going to be a, a certain amount of, of mutual respect. Uh, you know, if I was an investor, I owned a portfolio of homes and I wanted to list them, I probably would want another investor to list them for me because mm. they understand my properties, you know, they understand they, I, I'm going to expect that they have a greater understanding of the market, the marketplace. I'm going to expect that they have a greater understanding of how, you know, rentals get sold. Um, so I, I think it's an advantage to you for sure to go into those situations and say, Hey man, I know what you're going through. I know, you know what it's like to rent these properties. I'm, I'm an investor myself. Um, I think your best bet is to list these things. Why don't I list them for you? Yeah. No, I think that's a great way because you're you're connecting with them. They have somebody that you get, they can relate to, yes, right? And right. that matters a lot, especially when lot. it comes to negotiating. Um, switching gears a little bit, still on the topic of the market and everything. What has made what has made this buyer demand so insane? Where we thought high unemployment, all this uncertainty and everything, yet people are coming into the markets paying. 10, 20, 30, 40 plus thousand dollars over ask, uh, paying cash, waving off contingencies, waving off everything. And John does the market update and he's looked at it and he's like, the sales haven't gone down like year over year. It's not like we have, yes, we have low inventory, but not less sales. So there's still every house that comes on the market is off the market almost instantly. Like, where's that coming from? What's driving that? Yeah. I mean, the increase in price and the, and, you know, Massive multiple offer situations over list price. I think that is a result of the low inventory. I mean, pre pandemic, I'd look in the Austin Board of Realtors at any given time and see 6,600 6, active listings. And today I'll look and there'll be 1,700. I mean, that, that's mm. such a dramatic decrease in the amount of inventory. And it's not just inventory of resales, which is usually what we see in the MLS, but it's, you know, restricted inventory of new builds as well. Um, a large part because of supply problems. And so all of these things are creating a, a kind of a perfect storm. Demand, I think, is just steady and it's steadily going. And I think that was the surprising thing is the demand stayed steady through the pandemic. Um, but again, so largely driven by the millennial generation, which 
uh, is just their buying power is going to continue to increase. It has been increasing. It will continue to increase until they reach, you know, age 55. And uh, that is driving the economy as a whole and is driving the housing market. It's driving demand in the housing market. So I wanted to hit on that because you mentioned it before and you mentioned it at one of our masterminds that you talked about that the millennial hitting their peak, uh, peak spending. And I wanted to really break that down a little because I thought that was very great insight. As far as trying to, I guess, predict a market crash or something like that, you brought up the point of the millennial hitting their peak and going until they're 55. So if you could just break down, what does that mean? They're hitting their peak spending. What do you mean by peak spending? What's giving them that? It's not really peak spending. It's it's peak earnings. So okay. um, just, just on average mm-hmm. for years and for decades, you know, we've seen that, uh, you know, adults in America tend to reach the peak of what their earning power is at around age 55. Um, in other words, they start to cut hours or start to cut amount of work after 55, they start to slow down. Um, but you know, you move up the corporate ladder and at age 55, you're probably at the peak of where you're going to be in, in your corporation. You're making the, you know, the big bucks, the big salary. Um, that's just kind of the pattern of things, you know, you make more when you're 55 than you make when you're 20. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of a steady climb up. And so we just look at the age of the single largest generation ever. And and so their buying power or their earnings are going up every single year. Um, their earning potential goes up. And that means they have more money to spend for sure. They have been the largest group of buyers and houses for, you know, close to a decade now. And so they're all, it is funny because we have these myths out there about millennials that, oh, they, they just live with mom forever. Mm-hmm. They, they did delay a little bit and how quickly they got out and buy houses or they just want to rent forever. Eh, when they were in their mid twenties and early twenties. Yeah. They didn't they weren't in a hurry to buy houses. They liked that flexibility of moving around, but we've, we've taken it to mean that they're never going to be buyers or that they... That's just not true. That's not what the statistics show. They show that they are already our largest pool of buyers. Hmm. And you're saying that also they're starting to hit their 40s now, the youngest millennials. So they have another 15 years. The oldest. The oldest. oldest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. The oldest millennial. Right. Um, They're starting to hit their 40s. So they have at least another, you know, 14, 15 years ago of that peak earning. And then we have the rest of the millennial population coming in right behind them. Right. So in theory, what are we looking at? Like there's no real crash coming in the next 10 years. I mean, who knows? Who knows? I'm saying knows, as far right? as supply and demand goes. <laughs> I mean, I think we have to look at a number of factors, mm-hmm. you know, for that. I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's not that like economics is, um, it's not, it's not predicting the weather. It, it is actually much more predictable, and we can learn from past maneuvers, both at the um, Federal Reserve level, government level. Uh, you know, so I think our ability to sustain growth and control growth has, has definitely improved. Mm-hmm. The science of economics has improved, uh, as the science of everything improves. Uh, but... You know, I think that's a huge factor in it too. Is just just that that demographic change is is enormous. 
um, the Gen X generation was so small. We had all these fears of them not being able to sustain Social Security and, you know, and what are we going to do? Our aging, you know, working population, the baby right. boomers are all going to suck us dry. Um, well, we didn't, we didn't anticipate this giant millennial generation to kind of prop that all up. And so our, our ability to factor all these things in, I think, is just improving. It doesn't mean that it's not going to crash at some point. It could. It could all come crashing down next year, for all I know. Um, If if these things were that predictable, we'd never have a crash, right? Uh, If we would have seen the the housing bubble. (laughs) Yeah, for sure, (laughs) right? right? Um, There's probably, you know, and there's always crazy macroeconomic things that could drastically change, like war in Korea, you know? I mean, that may have a huge effect on the world economy or, you know... China implodes, you know, who, who knows, right? Um, so there's just unpredictable things, but our ability to, to sustain growth, I think, has improved. All right. And there's a lot of people right now that I keep talking to that keep they're always asking me the same thing, you know, when should I invest? Should I wait? You know, when I'm just holding my cash waiting for the crash. I'm waiting for the crash. The crash is coming because, you know, the crash has got to come. So the crash is coming. Uh, what's your advice to those people that are waiting on the sideline for this crash to come? You you get out there and you market right now, and you talk to as many sellers as you can right now, and you sell the things to keep the lights on and feed your family, and you keep all you can. Right. <laughs> uh, that's I, I don't think that advice ever changes. That's the same thing, you know. Sell all you have to and keep all you can. That's that's the general rule in real estate, and um, so. You know, if you don't like making money, I guess sit on the sidelines and wait. But if you like money, then I'd say, you know, jump in. There's money to be made. Um, even if you're saying, well, I don't want to hold property right now. Okay, you could still make money. Yeah. Um, there's still investment opportunities. You could still flip. You can still do a wrap. You could still, um, you know, wholesale like crazy. So why would you not want to make money? But I would not hold a property because I'm anticipating some sort of a crash. Um, it, it just hasn't played out. Things just continue to appreciate. Will they continue to appreciate at the crazy level they have the last year? No. But, um, you know, hmm. God, God doesn't make any more land. That's Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dubai is trying, but yeah, God doesn't do it. Um, <laughs> so I, I find that, you know, I just, every time people are asking me this, it, it's like, oh, I'm just waiting for the crash. I was like, well, when the crash happens, just buy more. I mean, right. <laughs> you know, but if you, you know, I have. We always talk about this. We have a friend of ours that he was very heavily invested in the stock market, and back in 2017, he says, "You know, a crash is coming, man. This is just crazy. A crash is coming." Pulled out of the stock, everything he had, and he had like a good amount of money in the stock market. It was like trading. I, I don't know, like 17 grand, 18 grand at the time. We're like at 34 now. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like. Kind of like a bad caller, but um, I think it's just one of those things. Like, if you keep trying to anticipate the market and not be a real investor in the market of knowing where the market is, you know, kind of taking the market where it's at, don't over leverage yourself. Even when I tell these people that are waiting on the sideline, I'm like, that doesn't mean you need to pick up something that's extremely risky. Keep waiting for that deal that makes you comfortable, right? But there's still deals. Like, we still find great deals, right? I think that's why it's so important. You know, I tell people two things. That is, don't go with any plan 
um, in mind, you know, don't, don't say, oh, I'm just going to wholesale or I'm, yeah. I'm just going to flip property. Um, you know, open yourself up to all the possibilities of ways to make money in real estate. And then don't go to any seller appointment with a plan in mind. I see people do two mm. hours of research before they meet a seller <laughs> and they've got it fixed in their mind that, okay, I've figured out it probably has this much equity and I'm going to do a flip on this. And if I can get it for this price, that's going to be great. And they go in there and the only thing they know to do now is to make that cash offer. And if they don't get it, then there's no deal. And they miss all the op- other opportunities that were there. Um, don't do any research. Don't know anything when you go meet a seller. Just go meet a seller and make friends and then figure out the solutions to the problems. And it'll just, it'll present itself and there'll be a way to make money. And then you don't worry about market cycles. You know, we always say, you know, this strategy of having your license and having all of these investment tools makes you cycle proof. And I think Mm. that's, that's, you know, one of the things we want, you know, if, being involved in real estate is not to be subjected to the whims of the, of the market and of the cycle. And if you have all those tools and you keep an open mind, then whatever deal presents itself at any given time is still going to be a deal and you're going to make money and the cycle is not going to matter. It may mean, you know, there was a time in 2006 and seven when what was presenting itself to me constantly was a bunch of short sales, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Those are money. You know, was there occasional wholesale? Yeah. Was there an occasional flip? Sure. Um, but what kept presenting itself a lot was short sales, but that's okay. And then the market changed and other things started to present themselves. And if you just go there with an open mind and have all the tools, it's easy. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And what opportunities are you seeing right now in the market as an investor with everything the market is doing with what we're seeing, you know, the buyer demand, housing shortage, uh, even lumber prices and materials issues and supply chains. Like, are you seeing any opportunities? Are you seeing anything in the market that you would be like, you know, this is something I'm trying to focus more on? Or I think it's listing heavy. Yeah. So, you know, what you're going to find is that what presents itself to you when you meet a seller is is um, going to be heavy on just listing the property. Um, but like you say, who cares? Two days later, it's going to be under contract and you're heading to a close, right? Um, super easy to list property right now. Uh, not even easy to find property to list, but once you ha- have it easy to to list and, and sell property that way. But because you're going to find that, yeah, even if somebody in distress that I may be talking to probably still has some time, um, they're probably not facing foreclosure because of moratoriums. And they probably have equity just because of the massive appreciation in the market. Mm-hmm. And so what's the best thing for them? Where are they going to make the most money? Where are they going to come out ahead the most? Is by listing their property, right? And so, you know, you can help yourself and help them the most. And so I'm not trying to push anybody to do listings, I'm, you know, um, even though that benefits me as a broker. Uh, <laughs> no, but that's broker, where the opportunity but, is. But I, I think it is. I, I just think it is. I think once we see a lot of this distress start to hit the marketplace, then I think we're going to see a lot of opportunities for subject to, um, for purchases, to whatever you want to do with, flip it, wholesale it, rent it, you know, whatever you want. I think just those buying opportunities are going to be there. But right now at this very moment, I think marketing, you should market in distressed sellers. I think you'll still, like I said, it just means it's heavy. It doesn't mean you won't get an occasional subject to, it doesn't mean you won't get an occasional wholesale. It doesn't mean you won't find something to flip. But I think it's just, if you're just marketing to distressed sellers in general, what's going to present itself a little heavy right now is listings. And one thing that I always hear, uh, Investors say it's like, ah, 
I don't want to list properties. I don't want to be a listing agent and have to deal with this and that. But one of the advantages I always see and why John does the market update and everything is knowledge of where the market is gives you an insight knowledge almost on where the market is heading. And I think if you do a lot of listings, you're in the market consistently. You're seeing, hey, I'm starting to see buyer demand start dwindling, or I'm starting to see more demand for this side or that side or this. It makes you a better investor. The more data you can collect, the more things you can collect. I mean, overall, it makes you a be much better investor. Yeah. So when people are saying, I don't want to be a listing agent or do things like that, I'm like, it's not being a listing agent. It's that you taking uh, advantage of the opportunities in the market and the data that you're getting from that. I, I, I take that as not serious. You're yeah. not serious. You're not serious about being a, mm. a, a, in real estate. If you're serious about being in real estate, you would engross yourself in it. You would do everything. Uh, you would take every opportunity. You know, you wouldn't say, oh, that's not my cup of tea or not what I want to do. Well, then you're in the wrong business. You know, yeah. I mean, that's just part, part of this business is that we, like you said, we need to make ourselves experts in this business. And that's a great way to do it. We need to make money where it's at when it's, mm -hmm. when it's there. And that's a way to do it. So is it the most fun deal? Maybe not, but are you in this for fun or are you in this for money? You know? Yeah. And, and so I think making money is fun personally. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's always, especially when you're spending money and effort on marketing and, and prospecting and generating leads is like to not monetize on the ones that you can monetize, I think is really wasted effort and money. Yeah. I, and you and I have been around a while and, and you know what I mean by the not serious investor, yeah. the one that comes in and says, Oh, I'm going to do this. This is my plan. And mm -hmm. uh, rather than learning and taking everything and, and engrossing themselves in it, they think that they're going to come in and five hours a week, they're going to make, you know, 50 grand a month and they have one, you know, good month. And then they think, aha, my plan is working. And then a, a year later, we don't know where they're at anymore. They're gone. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. So I wanted to kind of go over some tips from you on scaling a business. So you've been in business for... How long now? You started Stepstone in 2007, I believe? Mm -hmm. I've been, yeah, in real estate for 18 years now. 18 years. So in scaling a business to the level that you're at now, now you guys have 300 plus 307 agents. Um, what are some tips that you have for building a team to help you get to this level? I think it all starts with making sure that you are documenting what you do. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't stress the importance of that enough. We're still doing it. You know, we're still filling holes. Um, you, 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 until you start doing it, you don't realize how much you do, you know, and how many parts there are. Um, you're not going to build a team unless you know what pe to hire people to do. Mm. And you're not going to know what to hire people to do if you don't know what you do. You may think you know what you do, but until you actually start to write down every little thing that you do, um, you won't. And so, and and that's going to allow you to see what where you can hire, see what you can outsource, see what you can, um, you know, how you can fill a role in, in your business to scale up. And um, second thing I would say is create an organizational chart. I, I think that the organizational chart, I think is one of the most important things. And it's funny. You're like, but I'm just by myself. Yeah. Put yourself at top CEO and then, you know, kind of build out uh, based upon all the procedures and all the things you do, you know, 
you know, a CFO. Well, that's still you. So you put your name there, you know, right. <laughs> uh, whatever, an office manager. Oh, that's me too. Um, cause that's how it's going to be. But in, until you can define what you do and start to put it in those boxes as to who should be in charge of that. Once you have a box full and you can hire somebody full time to do that, then you know what they're going to do. You can just hand them the procedures and say, this is how you do it. Um, so I think that's the biggest advice I can give and you can't start soon enough. Um, just mm-hmm. writing down what you do. I definitely learned that the hard way. Um, what do you recommend as far as that goes? Something that's helped you as it been, uh, a book you've read or a software you use or something to build out that the processes and do that stuff. Yeah. I mean, traction is a great book. Gotcha. Um, yeah, if you haven't read traction, I, I highly recommend that. Um, just, and I, I tell people read it, even if you don't have a business partner or, you know, if nothing else, take out of it, how to conduct a meeting, even if you mm-hmm. have to conduct a meeting with yourself. Right. Um, it's easy for us to get caught up in this laundry list of to do's. Um, it's, it's harder to break down a methodical way to build your business and that'll help you do that. Yeah. All right. Now the next one is any tips on managing a team? Man, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're the CEO, right? Yeah. So even even if you're the one not directly managing, you've probably put in place or have somebody in place that is. What does that look like? I could I could say it's a you know, man, managing people is a is a fine art mm-hmm. where you're kind of straddling the you know straddling a line between being a dictator and being a democracy Hmm. because you don't want to be a democracy, but at the same time, you don't want to be a dictator. So how do you, how do you handle that? Um, I think it comes from listening, Mm -hmm. you know, constantly asking where people are at how they feel about how things are going, um, what they like about their job, what they don't like about their job. Um, you're not going to fix everything they hate about their job, but at the same time, just being able to listen and being able to see where you can improve. And if you make a small improvement for somebody and say, hey, I know you hated this. We made this little system change and maybe that'll be better for you. It goes a long way, right. you know, that they recognize that, hey, I'm being listened to. I'm, um, somebody's, you know, trying to actively to make my job better and easier. And, um, and, and when you have, you know, other leaders to definitely, you know, seek input to try to create consensus. Like I said, it's, you know, it can't be a democracy, but at the same time, you know, you can't just say, we're going to do this. And this is, you know, I don't care what you say. Right. Um, so that's, that's my job as CEO more than anything, I think is, is just trying to listen to all the other viewpoints and to try to find a consensus, uh, a compromise, a, a way to move forward that everybody can get behind. All right. And any tools or books on that that you've learned stuff from? Yeah. <laughs> Anything? There's just been time and time doing. Yeah, I, I you know, I, um, it's probably somewhere where I've been weak in the, in my reading is okay. and I need any kind of leadership skills or anything like that. Um I know you and I tried the book and I just bored with it yeah uh but um you know if i if i don't if i don't get engrossed in a book i just can't slog through it i just can't uh so i don't know that i'm i'm the best person to give advice for that i would say <laughs> i just i learned from trial and error and experience and 
getting called out for mansplaining one too many times. <laughs> well, especially when you have an office full that. of women. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's going to make that very difficult. Hey, we just hired our CFO, Jose. So, there you go. So, <laughs> got, one, got one on my team. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you got to have diversity. Yep. Um, how do you manage choosing your priorities? So I think as a business owner, it gets so difficult because we get, you know, the shiny penny and we want to, or sometimes we just get so ambitious with the opportunities and with stuff. We want to take everything on. Like, how do you say, no, I've, these are the things I need to focus on. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I always feel like there's a cycle of businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you first are, are starting a business, you want to add every revenue stream that you can because you need money. Right. And, um, certainly guilty. You know, there were a lot of little side businesses I tried or I started uh, or wasted money on um, just to try to find some things to hit that would, you know, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. But I think eventually as part of that business cycle, it it emerges what is the most profitable and efficient. And then you start to shed all of these other little side businesses saying, well, that's a way, you know, that's distracting me from the one thing that's, you know, making all the money. And um, and then eventually you get that systematized and so refined and well, then you start adding things back in saying, oh, now we're going to buy this little subsidiary or we're going to, you know, I think it's just a cycle of business. Um, so I don't know if that answers so, your So you kind of start off doing everything and then when you start getting some traction, you start decreasing back yeah down. you start honing in on what's what's working and being successful and mm-hmm. i don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong with that um but i think you do have to prioritize and and so that I, again i think where the book traction would help anybody do that um it it comes from debate you know really as to when you limit yourself in the things you can work on and i think that's one of the key things you get from traction is that um, you can't build Rome in a day or in a week. And so it forces you to say, what are the three things that we can work on this week? What are the, you know, three major issues we can work on this month? And, and you'll find that you can list out 20 and narrowing it down to just three, just this month, because they're all so important, Yeah, um, is, is very difficult but it will keep you focused in actually building things rather than getting so overwhelmed you don't end up doing anything. Uh, that's an excellent point. Any tips on time management? So just, Time blocking. I mean, okay. it's, uh, your calendar is your friend. My, mm. my calendar uh, looks like a kid spilled crayon all over it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's everything color coordinated. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, very detailed. Um, you know, you gotta be flexible, but, uh, you got to block out time to work on the, the big issues and the things that take concentration. Um, again, kind of going back to some of these books you and I have read, mm-hmm. um, just the science science behind your brain, uh, that you will be distracted for 30 minutes if you distract yourself at all. And so in other words, if you just take a quick look at Facebook and then you go try to work on something, your mind will still be have that Facebook in bouncing around for the next 30 minutes. And so if you don't block out time or you block out everything, or you block out your emails, your Facebook, your, um, your phone, your text, and just set two hours aside and put it in your calendar, make sure you do it. 
and work on your systems or work on a, a marketing piece or whatever it is that you need to work on and that you have positioned yourself at that time. That is the most important thing with time management is, to, is you know, people come with a to-do list and they work on one thing and then they look at Facebook and then they work on this and they never do anything well. And just being able to block out some time to just concentrate and work on that one thing you need to work on, it's huge. You got to do it. I think that uh, do you have a preferred time of day you like to time block? Like do you, especially when you have your three main priorities, is it like you like to make sure every morning is? Um, no, I, I usually, you know, it just kind of depends on the day, mm. um, what, yeah. what meetings I may have, or I, I don't find the time of day really isn't as important as, as it is just doing it. And even if I'm a little bit tired this afternoon or I need to get some coffee or, or whatever, that first half hour sometimes is tough. That's the part that's just kind of like droggy or whatever. But if you just stick with it and and don't give up and get through your two hours, you'll find, you know, about hour one, all of a sudden you're just pounding out, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to trying to do. And by the end of that two hours, you're like, man, I, I got actually got a lot done. So um, it's it's hard sometimes and it's it's hard to maintain that kind of discipline, but um, it's totally worth it. And the last on uh, scaling your businesses, what tips do you have on building a business where you start kind of working your way yourself out of it to kind of regain more freedom and still, you know, kind of that built to sell model or something along the lines like that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not there yet. I want to uh-huh. be there. And I always, I always say that there's a difference between owning a business and being self-employed mm-hmm. and that we're all self-employed until that, that point where you could potentially step away from your business and it would still continue to go, you know, and, and it doesn't, it's not a switch kind of thing. It's not like one day you're not there and then you flip the switch and the next day you are there. It's a very gradual thing. So there are pieces of my business now that I don't need to be there for. And in fact, one of the things I kind of learned about my own business uh, when we hired Jose as our CFO is he's going through and trying to understand a lot of the processes that we do and particularly processes involve money. Like how does this happen with closing? How does this bill get paid? And he would call me and ask me, and then I'd realize, you know, I have no idea how we do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good thing. (laughs) That means I'm not in charge of that. I'm not doing that. I didn't create, you know, I kind of have a vague idea of how we do that, but specifically, or, or, hey, we pay for this every month. What is that? I'm like, hmm. No idea. Something we need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I guess we needed that. Um, so so that's that's a good thing. But there's still certain aspects of the business that require me and require me every week and require my time. Right. And um, so it's a gradual thing, you know. And it, it again, it's about identifying those pr- processes and those procedures and starting to get rid of them, starting to push them onto somebody else. And um, And once they're all gone, then you own a business. Nice. Like that, owning a business versus being self-employed. Okay, what's next for Stepstone and your agents? Man, kind of trying to get me to release all the secrets, huh? Uh, you know, let people know what the, what's what's what are what are the big plans for uh, Stepstone? You know, I mean, we're we're proud of of what we built and what mm-hmm. we've really been doing this year is 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 refining. Um, all of those things, uh, you know, just taking them up a notch, making them more professional, 
Um, we're excited to get back into into some live events. You know, pre-pandemic, we had you know met with our agents once a month at various mastermind meetings. Uh, we had various workshops. Um, so we're excited. Coming in October, we're going to be doing a, a kind of a big workshop, a a giant two day kind of convention. Um, and when we say workshop, I'm not, you know, I don't mean we're just getting together or just talking about real estate. I'm talking about specific classes that are really, we're going to really, really focus on hands-on training on, on teaching you how to use particular spreadsheets or, you know, coming away with tools and actual skills. Um, they're just going to help you in your business. And so we're excited to do that. We're excited to get back to doing our, our live masterminds again as well. Um, you know, as, as a company, you know, that's, that's for our agents and what we continue to do for our agents. Oh, we're, we're, um, coming out with a new platform. Um, we hope by later this year, um, we're really hoping for third quarter of this year. So we'll see if we can make that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's just going to increase that ability to, to collaborate and communicate with each other, to mm. share, uh, uh, vendor information with each other, um, to be able to just have a better sense of, of um, who the other agents are and to be able to make better context, do better networking. Um, it's We're really excited about this platform. It's really coming together, cool. and um, we're excited to release that. So um, that'll be the, the a big addition to what you know our, our agents are able to do um, within Stepstone. So we're very excited about that as a company, you know, we're looking to expand. Um, you know, we have a plan that to next, ne- next year, start to expand the number of cities that we're in. Um, and then year after that, expand the number of States that we're in. And so, okay. um, we want to continue to grow and, in, in, you know, we think of Stepstone as an exclusive club where you can do deals fairly and honestly with each other, where you can rely on each other, where you can get information from each other. Um, the more people in that club, the better off we're all going to be. So this uh, coming workshop that you ha- that you're planning in uh, the fall is this for everybody or just for your stepstone agents? It's just for stepstone agents, exclusive okay. for our stepstone nice. agents. Um, you know, it's definitely a benefit or perk of being a stepstone agent is that kind of training. Um, you know, I, I always make it clear that we're not a coaching program. We don't intend to be a coaching program. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't want to learn. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean we don't want to continue to hone in our skills and continue to um, improve and to continue to learn from each other. And that's really what this, this um, I don't know if to call it a workshop or a convention, you know, um, but, but, you know, what this is is an opportunity for our agents to, to get together, to network, to get to know each other, but also just to come out with um, massively improved skills. And we're, we're putting a, just a giant emphasis this, this time around on creating classes or, you know, getting agents, other, or, you know, agents who are having success to share, you know, how do they, you know, do their KPIs? How do they track their sales calls? What kind of techniques have they learned in their cold calling? Um, let's practice them together. You know, those kind of classes to where when you come away from this convention, you are going to be like, you know what, I'm, I'm ready to go. I've got, I've got so much to work on. I got so much yeah. that, that I can add to what I'm doing. Um, this is going to make me more successful. I, I, I can't imagine anybody coming away with this, not thinking I can be more successful now. Yeah. No, and that collaborative uh, brain power that's going to be there of big investors, new people, different areas of commercial, residential, 
buy and hold, fix and flips, land, owner finance. I mean, the amount of collaboration and brain power there, I think it's going to be insane. There's, there's going to be classes there where I don't even know, you know, what they're, what they're doing. I've been doing this for 18 (laughs) years, you know? Um, and yeah, uh, you know, could I evaluate, uh, you know, how successful a short-term rental is going to be? No, I don't have any idea, but you know, Mm. uh, uh, there's, there's people in our, in our, uh, brokerage that that do yeah and that can and provide those, it. yeah and they can provide those skills yeah. and, and can help us out so there's no there's no shortage of information and things to learn in real estate investing that's what makes it so fun and so exciting is that you for a lifetime you could continue to add to your skill set and, and continue to add to your tool chest and um, continue to create new ways of making more money so if somebody listening wanted to find out more about stepstone or find out how to join or anything where's the best place for them to go what's the best thing for them to do yeah the the best thing to do is to go to our website stepstone texas all spelled out stepstonetexas.com uh right there on the front page if you're like man i want to just hear in detail everything about your brokerage um right there on the front page you sign up for one of our learn about stepstone meetings we do them on zoom every wednesday we rotate between 10 a.m and 6 p.m so if it whatever if you're working or or whatever you can find a time that works for you um we're gonna get on zoom we're gonna you know got a presentation doesn't take long 15 minutes just kind of tell you everything you get with stepstone what our commission splits are want to make sure that there were though we you know have plenty of time to answer questions and to you know we're just trying to explore together whether it's a good fit for you and um you know what you know you want to know what you're going to get what the opportunity is and and um i i think you'll you'll like hearing it and you know you'll be you'll be pleasantly surprised you know um we're not expensive we're not you know uh but we do give a lot and yeah. I, and i think and if nothing else you know just being a part of that community, I think, is you'll find is going to be worth it. Yeah, tremendous. And the workshops that you do consistently, are those open for everybody or just Stepstone agents? No, again, just Stepstone agents. Yep. Um, so we we do want to you know there to be a perk. We, we do um, continuing education classes, CE classes for agents on investor topics, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lot of fun, like I said, because so many agents out there, I think it's just, you know, just don't understand investing and so they're scared of it and that's why they have such a um poor view of investors is because they they do think they're vultures or yep. uh they're, they're doing illegal or, or shady things and um but they they always enjoy our ce classes because they come in there thinking that and then they their eyes are open to the possibility and and they're used to going to ce classes that uh tell them all the things they can't and shouldn't do. And we get to do C classes and tell them all the things they can and should do. And so that's a lot more fun. Um, but, um, and those are open to anybody. You don't even have to be an agent. You can join one of those classes. You just want to hear about the topic, like subject to or wholesaling or whatever it is. Um, but, uh, in, uh, our agents get those for free. Um, we do charge $20 to the general population to mm-hmm. attend one of those, but our agents get those for free. And they, sometimes they'll watch them two or three times just to try to, you know, yeah. understand everything, uh, that's going on with them. But, um, but that's the only thing that we keep open to the public. Um, if you come to one of our learn about stepstone, uh, zoom meetings, then you can, then you can come to one of our masterminds for free. 
Um, so once we start going back live, you can join one of those, come have some lunch with us, hear a guest speaker, discussion topic, or something to get you on the cutting edge of what's working in the real estate community and get to network, meet some of the other agents. It's a good way to also kind of explore if you're still kind of on the fence after that meeting. Is this the right place for me? Right. Um, that'll be a good opportunity for you to do that. But other than that, the masterminds are exclusive to our agents and the workshops are always exclusive to our agents and, and their business partners and spouses. So right. I want to, you know, make sure that that's clear too. It's not, you have, you don't have to leave your husband at home. You can attend to, um, any parting words, man, I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to come here and, and, and chat. It's always fun. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm excited about real estate. I'm excited about what's coming down the pipe. I think we got a great opportunity to help a lot of people that are going to need it. Um, so, you know, I hope you'll dive right in, start, start your marketing and start calling today. You can never do that soon enough. You can continue to learn forever, but you need to start marketing and start talking to sellers today. That's the best advice I can give anybody. Excellent advice. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, a lot of amazing tips. I definitely recommend you go back and re-listen to this, uh, especially as you grow in your business, because there's a lot of things that are going to affect you at different stages. Um, and if you haven't already, I mean, I don't know. So make sure you check out this episode over here on what to do before you quit your job to get into real estate and check out all this other content down here that we also put out every single week. And if you're enjoying this, hit that subscribe button. It means the world to us. And I'll catch you guys on the next episode.